Good morning, church. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, as we're getting into the waning sermons covering this epistle. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll be in verse 8. You know, it's, there's lots of new things. There's not a lot of old things. But the old things that persist are the things that we ought to pay attention to. John alluded to the statue commemorating uh, those men from Chester and the surrounding areas that fought and died in the Civil War. We just sang a hymn that's 500 years old. You often wonder how many of the top 40 contemporary Christian songs are going to be sung 500 years from now if the Lord tarries. I would wager not many. I wonder how many of our events and things that we do are going to be memorialized in statues. And I would say probably not many. But the things that endure, the things that do abide, are the things that are worth paying attention to. And certainly, as we've already talked about this morning, God's Word abides. 2,000 years ago, the words that we're about to read from 1 Peter 8 were penned, and here we are still reading them, still being encouraged by them. And so let's turn to those ancient words this morning. The word of the Lord. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, speak to us in your word. These ancient words, ever true. Use them to change us as individuals and as a church. Remind us of how ancient things are things that are steadfast, of things that are sure, and there's nothing more steadfast, more sure, more changing than your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The world has an interesting preoccupation with the demonic. I don't watch many horror movies, but I certainly am aware that demons, dark forces, are a very stimulating aspect of that genre. And whether people have any religious bent or not, they know there is something tied up in demons, in devils, and in Satan. You'll often see that if a band or a musician or a teenager who wants to look tough, what they'll do is they'll slap an upside-down pentagram or a goat's head on their album or on their leather jacket. Because in some way, shape, or form, they want to identify with something that even if they don't really understand it, they know that there's something there. And the fact of the matter is is that even within the church, we have a few different kinds of relationships with demons, with the devil, with things that are dark. C.S. Lewis, in his short book, The Screwtape Letters, and if you haven't taken A few hours to read through this, I would encourage you, even though it was written almost 75 years ago, it's still incredibly 
pertinent and timely, but he kind of, he takes on the persona of a devil, a devil who tempts, and he's writing to his cousin, his nephew, another devil who tempts. But in the preface to the book, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. So as it is with the case in most circumstances, we have the, the kind of the inclination to fall on one side or the other. We either don't think that this is really a thing, and you might find this in a lot of contemporary Christianity, a lot of contemporary evangelical writing, and certainly a lot of critical writing about Scripture, really passes off the ideas as de- demons and devils, as, pers- as kind of anthropomorphic personifications of the ills that befall us. So if you are struggling with a sin, a demon is a way to kind of picture that, and a devil is kind of a way to like point at something that isn't truly tangible. So if you have a struggle with lust, then Scripture's use of demons is really just a way for us to kind of have a picture of how bad lust is, horns and the pitchfork tail and things like that. Well, this is not true. This is an oversimplification. In the words of Lewis, this is to disbelieve in their existence. It's to pass them off as a literary device, and that's certainly not true. But the other side of the coin is this issue that I think we run into very frequently as well, and that's to see a devil behind every rock. That's to account for all things that are wrong as demonic or the oppression of evil spirits. I've been in plenty of situations where a, where a circumstance or a scenario like we had last week when our AV wasn't working, where there would be plenty of people muttering that Satan was out to try to get the church because the AV wasn't working right. Maybe it was Satan. Maybe it was an old iPhone. And to see the demons behind every rock and in every corner is also, as it says here, an excessive and unhealthy interest. But the reality is, is that Satan is real. Demons are real. Scripture speaks about them and speaks to them. But it, as is the case with many things that people kind of treat as a hobby horse, things that keep people become, you know, the end times guy, the prophecy guy, people become the demon guy, where even when there's nothing about demons and devils and Satan's, Satan in the text, they find a way to shoehorn it in there. This isn't to say that we disregard it, but it's also that we don't lift it and put it on a pedestal in a way that Scripture doesn't treat it. Much more is said about the sin that we bring on ourselves than the sin that any sort of evil, demonic, spiritual entity brings on us. So we must treat these things in balance. We must keep these things in perspective. And the best way to do that is not by what we find in the shelves of the Christian bookstore. It's not what we find in YouTube videos. It's what we find in the text of Scripture itself. And so although there is not many texts that deal with demons, that deal with evil spirits, that deal with Satan himself, this is one text that does. And so we have gotten through the vast majority of the book of 1 Peter, this letter from Peter to an audience in the first century, 
without talking about his spirits, yet here at the end, he does introduce the fact that the devil is a factor in the suffering that the church is going through. And so we will treat this topic in the context of this epistle. We will treat this subject in an appropriate manner based upon the way that we are given it in God's word. And so look at how Peter encourages his audience in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So notice that we have this kind of this dichotomy. Be sober-minded, which means to be measured, means to be kind of calm, inasmuch as sobriety, in the context of what we're used to hearing about it in our culture, has to do with substances. We are commanded to be sober-minded in our disposition. We are commanded to be sober-minded in the way that we come at any sort of topic or any sort of circumstance. We are sober-minded in that we are steady and we're not being unduly influenced by outside or even internal facets of what we think about or what influences us. So we are sober-minded. We're also watchful. So we are measured, but we're also alert. We are on ready but we're not antsy. We are, ang- we are not anxious, but we are paying attention. We are sober-minded, but we're also watchful. And what are we watching for? Who are we watching for? Your adversary, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion. So it would be worthwhile to take some time to kind of go into the, the theology of Satan. What does the Bible say about him? What does the Bible say about his Uh, about his work and and who he is and what he does. And we are going to be spending some time in Genesis in the coming weeks or months, and so we will inevitably get a chance to do that. But I think it's important to point out two necessary things before we continue in this. First and foremost, the devil is real and he's out to do damage. The devil is real and he is out to do damage. The New Testament says that Satan here will try to devour us. It also says in Ephesians that he will try to take advantage of our anger. Notice he isn't poking and prodding with that aforementioned Renaissance painting pitchfork, but he's taking advantage of our anger. We are essentially creating a foothold, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, when we are angry for the devil to do damage. It says later in Ephesians chapter 6 that he is devising schemes to attack us. He is not foolish. In our culture, an apparition or something that popped up in front of us would probably not impact us as much as pop-ups on our screen of our laptop. He devises schemes to attack us in ways that are not foolish, but in ways that are cunning and devious. It continues in 2 Corinthians to say that Satan tries to take advantage of us when we don't forgive. So once again... I'm not dismissing the the negative aspects of things like this, but heavy metal music and pentagrams and all the things that maybe 30 years ago were a part of the satanic panic, it's not to say that those things aren't real, but the text of the New Testament says that Satan is most able to damage us when you are angry and when you are not forgiving. It has nothing to do with the syncopated beat. 
It has nothing to do with wearing black clothing. It has everything to do with being angry and having an unforgiving heart. The New Testament also says that Satan will try to sift us like wheat. Jesus himself says that to his apostles when he is warning them about the adversity that they are going to face as they continue to live a life characterized by following Christ. These are things that the New Testament says regarding the reality of the devil and the damage that he can do. But the second thing that we need to understand about Satan before we go any further, something that surely would have been in the hearts and minds of a New Testament audience that heard the gospel, the gospel of salvation, but also the gospel of the kingdom preached by Christ and his apostles, is that Satan is defeated. Satan is defeated. We cannot live in the mindset that even though he's out to do damage, that he is some sort of equal and opposing force against Jesus. That's not the case. It is not like some sort of you know, boxing match where we're wondering who is going to win in the end. We think it's going to be Jesus. We're very confident it's going to be Jesus, but we don't know how it's going to manage to work itself out. Scripture is clear in the, def- in the present defeat and continuing defeat of Satan. He is defeated. In Matthew chapter 4, we hear about, and we see this in other Gospels, about how Jesus overcame Satan's temptation. When, ta- when Satan was tempting uh, Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus accomplished what Adam could not accomplish. Whereas Adam was in a picturesque, beautiful garden, yet gave in to the temptation of Satan, Jesus, in the wilderness, fasting, was able to overcome Satan and cast him down. In Matthew chapter 12, an even more explicit example is given of the defeat and the defeating of Satan. Jesus is encountering a group of people. He's going to cast out demons. They accuse him that he casts out demons by the king of demons, by Beelzebub himself. And Jesus says... I could not plunder the strong man's house unless the strong man has first been bound. And if you see me casting out demons, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. And he turns around and he casts out a demon. He says, I could not plunder the strong man's house unless the strong man has been bound. And then he goes on in the next breath to plunder the strong man's house. Jesus proves that he's bound the strong man. Now, of course, we are still waiting for the ultimate defeat, the ultimate casting down of Satan, but his defeat has already been inaugurated. We often talk about about the the age that we live in 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 good ways about how Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated, but we're waiting for its consummation. So it has already started and already is certain, but we're waiting for it to appear in a much more real form for us from our eyes, the same is true of the defeat of Satan. It has been inaugurated, but we're waiting for it to be consummated. One more example of that. Here's a text from Colossians chapter 2. In talking about the cross, it says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you don't need to respond because that's not really how I preach, but you can do this rhetorically in your head. When have you been forgiven? Future, past, or present? 
you have been forgiven in the past because that happened at what point in time? That happened at the cross. The text we just read says that God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of your debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in one very real sense, your forgiveness happened, was secured at the cross. This text says it in in clear language. It was applied to you in real time when the Holy Spirit regenerated you. So this is past tense things. Now this is what he goes on to say. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2 that he, talking about, about the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who are the rulers and authorities? It's not Pilate. It's not the Sadducees. It's not the Pharisees. It's not the government of Rome. It's not some other earthly power. But Paul, here in Colossians and elsewhere in his epistles, as is the case in other places in the New Testament, uses the phrase rulers and authorities, dominions and powers, to communicate the reality and the significance of spiritual forces, the same spiritual forces that were holding the nations in bondage, the same spiritual forces that really should have been cast out when Israel came into the Canaan, into the promised land, but they were unable to do so because of the harlotry they played with these very same rulers and powers and authorities. But the way that Paul writes about it here is that he disarmed, past tense, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Christ has defeated Satan. There is a certain future defeat that is coming, that is going to be total and comprehensive, but the victory has been secured inasmuch as he has crushed the head of the serpent. So when we read, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, we are watchful of that. We are pay attention to that church. But we're also sober-minded, allowing what influences us as the things that we just went through and the countless other examples that were given in Scripture of Christ's conquest over evil and over Satan. That is the defining paradigm of how we approach and how we understand demons and Satan. It isn't some sort of scary movie. It isn't the Renaissance painting of the guy in the red pajamas with the goat hooves. It is this truth that Christ has triumphed over authorities and rulers. So what does that have to do with suffering? What does this have to do with the theme of the book? Because this is actually drawn to the close. And for all intent and practical purposes, what we are covering today is the end of 1 Peter. We'll talk about the last few verses next week and kind of the closing and the summarization of of what 1 Peter is. But why bring this in here? Well, look at verse 9. Once more, he talks about Satan. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him, resist Satan, resist your adversary the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So once again, 
what I mentioned from a couple of passages, one from Ephesians and one from 2 Corinthians, that the, the vast majority of explicit teaching on how Satan is dangerous for the church comes down to him taking advantage of your sin. He can take advantage of your sin when you are angry. We read that in Ephesians chapter 4. He can take advantage of your sin when you are unforgiving. That's from 2 Corinthians. But here, it seems that Satan isn't necessarily the one causing you to suffer. But if you don't suffer well, that gives him a foothold to creep in. What does that look like? What does it look like to not suffer well? Well, at the most kind of blatant way, it's to blame God. Now, rewind in your mind to when you were a child. Or if you are a child, stay where you are. Don't leave your seats. If you did something wrong, if you took the cookie you shouldn't take, if you went out at an hour that you shouldn't doubt in, if you wore that black leather jacket with the heavy metal band logo on the back that mom and dad said don't do because you'll get possessed by the devil, but you did it anyway, and then you had a consequence, what should you be upset about in that moment? The consequence or the actions that led to that consequence? In our humanity, in our fallenness, in our short-sightedness, in our kind of myopia, in just the way that we kind of keep ourselves, we focus on ourselves, we are often focused on the, the consequence and we're not focused on what led us to that consequence. When we suffer, quite frequently, certainly not all the time, but quite frequently, our suffering is brought on by our own bad decisions. When we have relational difficulties, when we have financial difficulties, when we have intimacy difficulties, they are brought on by our sin. Now, there's no ratio, there's no chart, there's no you know, flow chart in the back of Scripture that tells you how, many of, how much of your suffering is based on your sin, how much of it is based on the sin of others, and how much of it is based on the fact that we live in a fallen world. But all three categories are true, and all three categories are real. But if we focus on the suffering and we don't look at the root cause of it, whether that be from something that we've done, our sin, our disobedience to our parents or to more appropriately to God, then we are missing out on potentially how we can avoid this again. And when we suffer and we don't think of it in those right terms, when we become bitter, when we become angry, when we become vindictive, when we isolate ourselves, when we try to find solutions that are in the world and that are not in God's word, then we are not suffering well. We are suffering in a way that's most comfortable and convenient and cathartic for us. We are not suffering in the ways that have been talked about earlier. I think it's also important to point out that the promise of perfect comfort, the promise of no suffering, the promise of everything being easy, that is what is demonic. That is what is short-sighted. Those are the kind of things that Jesus was actually being promised by Satan in the wilderness. You don't have to go through the trials. You don't have to go through the suffering. You don't have to go through the difficulty of the cross. You don't have to suffer. We resist the devil 
by suffering well, not by eliminating suffering. We can't eliminate suffering. It's impossible. It is a game of whack-a-mole where as you do your best to eliminate all the suffering over here, inevitably something over here will pop up and will grow. And when you turn around and face it, then because you've been ignoring it, trying to play God over here, this is going to cause you more problems. We resist the devil by suffering well, not allowing him to have a foothold in our hearts, in our minds, in our families, in our churches when there is difficulty. We also, it says here, resist the devil knowing that we're surrounded by many others who are doing so. Well, you're not alone. I think one of the ways that, like I mentioned earlier, that this can be a practical problem for us is that we can begin to pout thinking we're the only one going through difficulty. Once we do that, then we are cutting ourselves off from a God-ordained help in times of trouble. First and foremost, it is the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it is what God has given us in his perfect word. But both of those things are mediated by Christ through his body here on earth. This is the support structure that you have been given. Certainly family is helpful. Certainly community is helpful. Certainly all the things that we mentioned last week are helpful also as well. But if we isolate, if we think I am the only one who knows exactly what I'm going through, then you are not only cutting off those who can help you most, but you are probably also cutting off the one by which that true help comes. Because Jesus Christ himself suffered and he experienced all that we did and was tempted yet without sin. He is our perfect mediator and in his wisdom and in his providence, he has given us a body of lowercase m mediators that can stand with us in times of trouble, both presently and then as it says here, throughout the world. You know, there's churches that are meeting right now that have problems that we can't even wrap our minds around. You think of closed countries, those countries where going in with the gospel would get you apprehended or, or worse, would have you executed. You think of places where there is true oppression, where churches are having to lock their doors and churches are having to have armed guards. And it's, this is not some sort of exercise to find on the scale where is your suffering versus where is their suffering. That's not what we're talking about at all because as we talked about a few, last week, we cast all our anxieties on him knowing that he cares for us. Every one of our anxieties, worries, and cares is something that God wants. So it's not a game of trying to figure out who has the most anxiety points, the most worry points, or the most suffering points. But we ought to be encouraged knowing that our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world and throughout time have suffered well and have suffered looking to God, that that is the source of hope and that is the source of deliverance. And it's tied to our faith. And our faith is tied to our brothers, the covenant people of God. We are not alone. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. It's an oxymoron and it's an impossibility. And we can look to our brothers in Christ for wisdom and for guidance. Just a few days ago, one of the most prominent voices in evangelicalism in the past uh, few generations passed away. 
Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Church, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, passed away after a battle with cancer. And he had written about suffering prior to his diagnosis. And then with a new, and in his words, and his kind of mindset, a new providential sense, he was able to write about suffering as he was enduring a difficult treatment. And ultimately, as he passed away only a few days ago, surrounded by family and friends. This is something he wrote in 2000. And I don't know where this lines up with his diagnosis or not, but that's kind of aside the point. He writes, if we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus. We still don't know what the answer is. However, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. It's a wonderful, beautiful, yet at the same time painful encapsulation of how God considers our suffering. Our suffering is something that God cares about so much that he was willing to take it on himself because that was the only path for remediation, the only path for deliverance. And so what can we do? This is a great example of of knowledge and wisdom and insight that we can take and we can apply to ourselves, that we can then hand off to others who are suffering that is coming from a brother who, not anymore, church, but was suffering. We can see that suffering. We can be encouraged by how someone was living and pastoring and writing and guiding and encouraging through it. And then we can use that ourselves. We know the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brothers throughout the world. But then we're encouraged, just like I mentioned or alluded to a moment ago, Tim Keller is not suffering now. Knowing Christ, he has no more pain, no more discomfort. His faith has become sight. And we're promised that. We see that in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a little while. This might seem trite if your suffering has been going on for months, years, and decades. But what Peter has here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is God's perspective. After you've lived for a handful of decades, as you've lived maybe getting closer to the century mark than the half century mark, you begin to understand how quick time actually goes. And even though those times when we are suffering seem to go by much, much slower than the times when we are living in joy, we begin to get a glimpse of God's timeline we get to get a glimpse that this lifetime itself is a little while in the grand scheme of eternity. Suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary. And we are blessed in the sense that often in this life, the capital S suffering that we endure is temporary as well. 
we get the diagnosis, we go through the treatment, we come out on the other side in recovery, and the suffering may only last a period of time. For many of us, it's very, very quick. For some of us, it's not as quick, but it is still relatively temporary. But whether that is a one-month or a one-year or a ten-year process, or whether it does stretch on for an entire life in some sort of chronic situation and circumstance, it is temporary suffering. We are promised that we will only suffer a little while because we are living in anticipation of eternity. The supper we're about to partake of in a few moments is anticipation of eternity, and it makes what is today seem so much smaller. In fact, our suffering is kind of correlated to the fact that we have this tiny little thimble. There's, there's not enough there to really make us feel warm inside. There's not really enough in there to satiate us, but it is a foretaste of what we get to have in eternity. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He'll be the one who takes care of things. This is where our glory comes from, church. In Christ, our glory is eternal. We are called by God. Notice that. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is the surety of that glory. This is the surety of that eternity of peace coming on the heels of temporary suffering. It is a wonderful equation. It is such a small cost for us, a small price for us, a cost that has been paid for in full by Christ on the cross, a suffering that we will never comprehend, that we will never understand, your worst day, your darkest moment, the most difficult thing that you walk through, the pain that you experience physically, emotionally, and spiritually pales in comparison to that suffering that was counted by Christ on the cross. But because of that, we have been called by God. And notice what he'll do. He'll restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. It's interesting. A number of commentaries, including some of the most beloved commentaries that I turn to, when I went to go look at this and say, you know, what's the order? What's, what, what's the flow? How does restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish? How do they work together? Most of them said, if you're looking for some sort of great four points for your sermon, if you're looking for four progressive tips, four ways that you can see your life progress, you're sorely mistaken. Because what Peter is doing here through the Holy Spirit is simply saying in a redundant nature that God has this, that God has you, that you are sure, that you are secure. He will restore you. He will put you where you're supposed to be. He'll confirm you. He'll make you know that you're supposed to be there. He'll strengthen you. He'll make sure you put down roots, and he'll establish you. You will not be moved. How many more ways do you need it said that God has you in his hand because of what was accomplished by Christ on the cross? You will share in Christ's eternal glory, not by anything you've done, not by anything that this world has to offer, but by God in Christ. It's kind of a crescendo point, not for the sermon necessarily, but for the, the text here. It's almost like everything that we said about the devil, everything we said about Satan, is kind of like brushed aside. Not in the sense that we ignore it, we're still sober-minded and watchful, 
But in, in, in the light of a God who himself restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes by the blood of the very one who crushed the head of the serpent, that frames the way we look at evil. That frames the way we look at Satan. It frames the way that we, where we put ourselves in redemptive history, on the right side of victory, on the right side of conquest. And so Peter can say, and we can say in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So church, who has dominion? Who has dominion today? We don't say that God has dominion in some spiritual sense and that Satan is the, is, is the one who, who is in charge of the world. Yes, Scripture talks about him as the prince of the power of the air. It talks about him as the god of the world. But there's lots of gods of this world. And they are puny gods. They are impotent gods. They are gods that have limited power. They are gods who are chained and muzzled and declawed and neutered. That is the kind of gods that this world has to offer. Who has dominion? Christ has dominion. Where is he sitting? He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And so when we talk about God's dominion, we talk about the dominion of Christ, the reign of Christ, the lordship of Christ. When did that start? Past or future? That started. The ascension was his inauguration. We're waiting for that consummation of his kingdom, but forever has already started. Eternity has already started. The things that we enjoy in bits and pieces and in tastes and in samples as we have beautiful time of music, beautiful times of fellowship, as we enjoy the supper, as we even get to consider our loved ones being ushered off into eternity, these are foretastes of the beginning of forever. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes that in the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, there's those words regarding spiritual powers again, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, this was written 2,000 years ago, but also in the one to come, future, and he put, past tense, all things under his feet and gave, past tense, him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When we talk about Christ having dominion forever and ever, and that starts today, we don't say that in some sort of pie in the sky, optimistic, maybe kinda sort of way. This is the hard, firm, concrete truth about who our Jesus is. We don't give in to a defeatist Christian mentality. We don't give in to a cloistering away, seeing that we have enough food in the bomb shelter because we have to keep our peepers peeled for the devils that are lurking around every corner. We can live in great, sure confidence taking God's word at face value, taking it as his word, saying that in this age, Christ is seated, that he has already put all things under his feet, and he has given him as head to all things to the church. Do we live like that? 
Do you live like that? That's a wonderful question to ask. We might have that in our head, but do we have that in our heart? When difficulty arises, when that bad phone call comes, when the newspaper or the phone with the news on it pops up in the morning, what is your first mentality? Maybe Satan is winning this. Maybe the newspaper is how I need to be interpreting Scripture and not the other way around. Did you see what's happening in the Middle East? My goodness, maybe we have it backwards. Church, our paradigm, our framework, our lens is this truth that Christ has dominion. It was the encouragement for an early church who was being persecuted and who was suffering and who was going through trials. It's good enough 2,000 years later because we are still living in the reality of the light shining forth from the ascended, glorified, and resurrected Christ who is at the right hand of God. As a church, we need to live like that. As families, we need to live like that. We need to touch a world and a community that has no hope with the hope of a Lord who is reigning. It's not very alluring or appetizing for people to join a religion that's kind of a sinking ship. It's not very alluring or appetizing to ask people to join a church that's basically saying, let's go burrow ourselves because it's going to get really nasty and ugly, and so at least we'll have more warm bodies. Christ is given the victory. When we talk about the gospel, it is the gospel of salvation, but it's also the gospel of the kingdom, what Christ is doing on earth. So knowing this, understanding his dominion, it doesn't mean that we deny the devil's prowling. It doesn't mean that we deny our suffering. We don't have that kind of head-in-the-sand mentality. We don't deny those things. But it also means that we don't give up and we don't give in to a defeated foe. We don't give up and we don't give in to defeated, a defeated foe. A rattlesnake is dangerous. When you cut the head off a rattlesnake, you still don't grab its fangs because in its, its last, you know, uh, gasping moments of those currents moving through its brain, it still has the ability to bite and inject you with venom. So we understand that although the head of the serpent has been crushed, it still does damage. He is still prowling around, but we don't give up or give in because we know who has the victory, and that is where our identity lies. It also means we don't cede ground that belongs to the king. We don't give up. We don't give up our church. We don't give up our family. We don't give up our culture. We can stand and we can, take, we can take stands. We can make statements that reflect the reality of the economy of Christ. If Christ is Lord, that means something. And if you're saying it as a simple thing that the Bible says, but we don't believe it, then that's a problem that we need to remediate. We don't cede ground that belongs to the king. And it means we say, and it means we mean to him be the dominion forever and ever. This is our call. This is our opportunity. What a wonderful testimony to say these things, to mean these things, to believe these things, but to say these things today, even in the midst of suffering. What a wonderful testimony to our families, to our church, to a watching world. We're going to now move into our time of, of taking the Lord's Supper 
And there's so much that we can say about the Lord's Supper. There's so many things that, that need to be said. Christ is present with us by faith as we take this. This is an opportunity for us to be uh, examining ourselves. In fact, this is one of the most underappreciated and, and, un, and non-spoken of aspects of the supper, that to come up and take this, you don't need to be perfect, but you need to be bringing your cares, your worries, and yourself before the one who is perfect. That is how we take it unworthily. We take it in a flippant manner. We could talk about how this is an opportunity for us to draw nearer to each other as we do this corporately, and we don't do this individually. But this morning, in light of what we said, we take this supper as a reminder that God has given us in his word and in his fellowship and in his sacrament foretastes of the glory of his dominion. So as you receive this bread... And as you receive this wine, we take it back and we think about how this is a taste, how this is a simple picture, something that we will be able to experience in a much greater measure as we anticipate our entrance into the presence of God in a way that transcends even the presence that we have right now. So I'll ask John to come up and uh, lead us in a song. I will... Um, pray, and then I'll ask you to come and receive the elements and, and uh, do bring them back to your seats for us to take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the dominion of your Son. Even at bare minimum, to him be dominion forever and ever. Ought to rattle us if we are living with the idea that this is, that the idea of your rule is something for, for heaven. Your rule is something for the future. Lord, thank you for the confidence in the victory of your son that in the same surety that we can hold our salvation, we can hold his lordship over all creation. Lord, let us be the heralds, the ambassadors of this, this good news. The good news of salvation but the good news of how the kingdom of heaven is growing. It is the leaven that is moving throughout the entire lump. It is the tree that was planted from a small seed. It is growing so large that the kingdoms of the birds of the air will be able to nest under the shade of its branches. It is a net that is cast so wide that all the fish will be brought in. Lord, let, us this be, let this be our triumphant message. Let us first preach it to our own hearts. Let us preach it to our families. Let us preach it here in your church. And let us preach it to a world that needs this hope of the gospel. So I ask that you be with us in these coming moments as we take time to examine our hearts and our minds before you. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. <laughs>